So welcome back to Success Engineering. I'm your host, Michael Bauman, and I have the privilege of having Andre Henry on the show today. He's an award-winning musician. He's a writer. He's an activist, um, a columnist for Religion News Service, and the host of the podcast, Hope and Hard Pills. And he actually has a new book coming out, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, and it'll be launching March 22nd. So definitely check that out. He's been a student of nonviolent struggle. And so this is his whole personal journey. He's organized protests in LA and he's studied under some international movement leaders through the Harvard Kennedy School. And then this pursuit of racial justice comes up in everything from his music. And he's been featured in New Yorker, The Nation, the Liturgist podcast. I'm just really excited to hear his insights into this and get his perspective and just the tremendous amount of experience and wealth of knowledge he has. So welcome to the show, Andre. It's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I want to start off and just give the audience a little bit of your background. So you grew up in in Georgia. And can Mm -hmm. you just talk about that like intersection of the Confederate stuff on one side and you have King on the other side and then also talk about oppression and this, you'd write in that song in sixth grade and just open it up for you there. Oh, wow. You really did do your homework. I, I'm talking about research, man. <laughs> yeah, I got you, really you. <laughs> did, you really did do your homework. No one has mentioned my first song. You got it. This is your like, I mean, this is what launched your career right here. <laughs> so we, so yeah, like you mentioned, I grew up in Stone Mountain, Georgia. And I've mentioned, you know, that in Stone Mountain, there are two rivers that meet in historical rivers that meet in Stone Mountain, basically. And one is the stream of the Confederacy, right, is a, is a very important city in the Confederacy. And that's why it was burned down during the Civil War. And there's this whole, this whole kind of uh, heroic retelling or bizarro heroic retelling of how Atlanta was rebuilt after being burnt down by General Sherman, right? <laughs> um, and at the same time, there's the legacy of the Civil Rights Movement. It's like the capital city of the Civil Rights Movement, which Makes sense because as France Fanon says, that sites of oppression determine sites of resistance, right? Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that in this city, which was such a stronghold of white supremacy, that you would also have like this rich legacy of black resistance there. But growing up in the crosshairs of those histories is uh, confusing centuries later because you have people who both revere the Confederacy and revere Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the same geography. And growing up in that, growing up in that uh, context, in the home of Jamaican immigrants who don't have a deep knowledge of either of those things, right? They, they know about these things, but they don't have a deep knowledge of those things because the, the things they have a deep knowledge of is Jamaican history, it's not, not American history, right? right. So, so I didn't have... I didn't have the kind of parents that could speak in a deep and knowledgeable way about the the history of America. Like for them, this is the land of opportunity and it's much easier to live here than it is to live in Jamaica. Hence why they migrated here. So I say all that to say that it's no secret that America does not want to be very honest or detailed about its racial history, right? especially not in the South, where almost immediately after the Civil War was fought, there were white supremacists, specifically the United Daughters of the Confederacy, that were working very hard to reframe what the Confederacy's cause was all about, right? They want to say it was about states' rights. They want to frame it as a legitimate uprising against uh, federal over and uprising against tyranny and not about keeping slaves in the South, right? So that is the legacy I grew up in, where you have this entire culture that is steeped in this white supremacist, white supremacist tradition, but is perpetuating a revisionist history about it and wants everyone to agree. So as a child, I could perceive that Black kids and Black people were treated differently in my hometown. But anytime I would try to name that, there was this racial gaslighting that would happen from white adults telling me, that racism is a serious accusation as though it rarely happens and uh, don't play the race card and all those kinds of things, which was difficult because I did have a racial consciousness as a young person. Like I, I tell this story and I think part of this actually is part of this is not just hearing or overhearing adults talk about their experiences, but I think also we know a little bit more about epigenetics. So we know that like 
what is in your parents' DNA is also in you. And my parents were deeply cultural people, deeply conscious people about Black liberation and, and social justice, including my, my father, who was a reggae musician and an activist. <clears throat> he, he was not an activist when I was born. He he'd retired by then, but it was still the way that he talked about the world and about society, about governments, about power. Like, So I remember being very young, being nine years old or something and discovering Bob Marley and the Wailers album, Burning and Luton, in my uh, parents' vinyl collection and listening to I Shot the Sheriff every single day and drawing pictures in my room of the American Revolution and significant battles because the story of these these people who felt like they were being bullied by their government stood up to it. it it resonated with it. So yeah, in sixth grade, I wrote this, I wrote my first, I wrote, I, my mom says that I was making music or that I was at least humming like songs before I could talk. I was born a musical person, apparently, because I have no recollection of these things, right? <laughs> but that's what my parents tell me. And so I, I would like make songs out of all kinds of things when I, as early as second grade. But in sixth grade, I wrote my first song with its, you know, original lyrics and music. It was called Oppression. And it, told the story of Black people as much as I knew from being captured and enslaved up through the civil rights era. Yeah, no, I, I love that. Can you dive into it just a little bit more? I mean, and a little bit more, right? There's just a tons there, but around just the history of some of what you talked about, some of the, yeah. the well, first off, define gaslighting for the people that might not know what that is. And then also yeah. just the, yeah. the mis, miseducation and, you know, how history sure. has kind of shifted and um, just get yeah, into that a little absolutely. bit. Absolutely. And I, I still do study, I mean, not as much as I was before I wrote this book, but I still am studying and I'm still learning just how appropriate and intentional the gaslighting is. So for those who never heard of the term or have heard it, but don't really know what people are talking about or have heard it and not really looked that much into it. And like, I think people are maybe being overreacting gaslighting. And I even say in the book, I wish I had a better term for this, but I don't. It's like just a really great, it's the best term I think we have for this. Gaslighting is a tactic of abuse where the abuser tries to get the target to doubt their perception of reality. Even more than that, it's when the abuser wants for the target to accept the abuser's version of reality. Comes from a play from the 1930s where a man was playing, literally playing around with the gas-powered lights in the house and telling his wife that she was imagining that these things were happening so that he could control her. And so when I talk about racial gaslighting, I'm saying that white America, or America rather, has done that to its people, right? By, by trying to tell its history in a way that is inaccurate and intentionally doing so, replacing the actual story of how America was founded, which is through land theft and genocide and enslavement of African people, and completely erasing that, pushing those details of the story into the margins to replace it with things like manifest destiny, right? Like when I was in, when I was in school, I didn't learn anything about native indigenous people being massacred by the colonists and pilgrims and things like that. I mean, we were tracing our hands and drawing Thanksgiving turkeys and making pilgrim hats out of black construction paper. You know, of course, like you don't want to tell a nine-year-old or an eight-year-old like about these massacres, but I mean, Somewhere along the line, we could have been taught those things, but we weren't, right? And so <clears throat> I talk about this in the book on different levels. There is the systemic gaslighting. So I don't, I don't know how I forgot this, but this is the perfect example. Is I, I write about this in chapter two that I grew up in Stone Mountain and on the rock that we call Stone Mountain is the largest Confederate monument in America. It is a picture, sorry, a carving. Also, side note, it is the largest Bass relief carving in the world. <laughs> also, wow. I feel like that is also significant to say. <laughs> the largest bass relief carving in the world is a Confederate monument. And in that bass relief carving, <clears throat> Confederate generals Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and Confederate President Jefferson Davis are on horseback majestically riding their horses into, I guess, their perceived futures, right? Now, 
The idea for this monument came from a Klan sympathizer whose name escapes me. But it was a white woman and she was a Klan sympathizer. And the original idea was to have this carving just be of General Lee leading a procession of Klansmen in their robes. But the sculptor said, oh, that would be beneath me to carve. Not it's morally wrong. It's just uh, that would be like that would be like asking me to paint stick figures on this rock is basically his response. He wanted to do something with more pizzazz. And so he decided that he would do the two Confederate generals and the Confederate president. Now, I went to Stone Mountain many times as a child. They never talked about how the Ku Klux Klan or Klan sympathizers came up with this idea. And also, Stone Mountain is the actual site where the Ku Klux Klan was reborn. Never mentioned, never talked about it. So when we talk about gaslighting, some of the tactics of gaslighting include hiding information, covering up the truth, all these kinds of things. And so when I talk about gaslighting on a systemic level, that's what I'm talking about. It is this hiding of this information that people don't want to talk about for whatever reason. And when I mentioned that I continue to study, I'm reading more and more about fascism, which I talk about in the book. And this is actually, I believe that this actually goes very well with the work of Jason Stanley, who wrote a book called How Fascism Works. And one of the key points that he talks about in fascist politics is that they appeal to a mythic past, right? And the thing is that the fascists know that the past, the, the story that they're telling about the past is a myth. There's like a quote from Benito Mussolini. He says, we have invented our myth. So it's a very intentional thing. So anyway, that is the kind of thing when I'm talking about when I try to name as a child the things that I'm seeing about how Black people are treated differently and there are white individuals telling me not to play the race card and it's a serious accusation and we just shouldn't use that word and those kind of stuff. That is a form of gaslighting on the individual level. And on the systemic level, it has to do with these revisionist histories, these revisionist curriculums or history curriculums that, that were placed in our schools. And now what we see with the book burning and the demonization of critical race theory in America, <clears throat> these are all forms of racial gaslighting. Yeah. And so you had that growing up and then mm-hmm. you moved to moved to New York, you're trying to make it as a, a singer songwriter at that point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about what started to change, started to help you change your perspective and realize like something is not right here? Well, for sure. So I the difference between New York and Stone Mountain, or the South, I should say, because I also experienced things in college, like I was accused of stealing my own bike when I was in college because the security guard claimed I didn't, quote unquote, look like a student. And there again, I would try to say, that seems pretty racist, and that people would say, don't play the race card. Like, But in New York, when something like that would happen, like when I, I was applying for an apartment, the guy on the phone It's like, oh my gosh, I don't meet many decent people here in this historically Black neighborhood of Harlem. And offers to be my friend, and he's so excited. But then when he sees me in person, I see his face melt with disappointment, and he refused to rent the apartment to me. When I named that experience with people in New York, most people said, oh yeah, that's totally racist. That's racist. And so there was this kind of affirmation and confirmation of what I was seeing. But beyond that, there was this one event at my church in New York. And as much as I am, as much as I am shy to talk about my involvement in church and things like that, my previous involvement in church, I have to admit it was three black women at the church that I was working at in New York City who decided after the murder of, of Eric Garner that we needed to have a conversation at the church about whiteness. It was a Saturday morning conversation. I mean, obviously optional and a bunch of people came and they facilitated this conversation about racial justice. And they were talking about race in a way that I'd never heard anyone talk about race. First off, in all racial justice conversations I had it to that point, usually we would talk about the pain that Black people are experiencing, and it was always like this mystery. Why are Black people not doing that well? And then oftentimes someone, and sometimes, and oftentimes these people would be Black, would blame the pain of Black people in America on Black people. And say, oh, well, it's because these young black people keep walking around with their pants sagging or it's because they keep listening to that damn gangster rap music or (laughs) something like that. Right. But in this conversation, 
these women said something that is forbidden, right? They talked about Black people being in pain because some people believe that they are white. And that the fact that some people believe that they are white is consequential to Black people. And that idea sticks with me to the day, to this very day, because I understand it in a much deeper way than I ever could in that moment when I first heard it. Because we know that race is not a biological category. We know what is, there's no such thing as a white DNA, like Willie Jennings says. There's no such thing as a white biology. There's no such thing as a black biology. Christina Cleveland pointed out oh, years ago, and I never forgot, she said, Humans share most of our DNA with bananas. Like, we, <laughs> there's no such thing as a racial DNA. Race, is a social invention. It is a political category that was invented by certain people to justify the violence that they were exacting on indigenous people as they stole land in the new world and stole people from Africa to work those lands, right? So anyway, that got very deep about, about the point they were making about that some people believe that they are white. And because they believe that they are white, they believe that they're superior to other people. And that belief can be so insidious that people don't even know that they hold it. And I remember talking to a friend of mine in Orlando a couple of years ago that illustrates this, where we were talking about police violence. And she said, well, if they just dressed normally, like maybe that wouldn't happen to them. Or if they looked normal. And I asked her, and this is my friend, my dear friend. I didn't get upset. I just, I was like, I'm going to challenge my friend. What does a normal person look like to you? Right. And they're explaining. And then I kept pushing them on it. And eventually they realized, they, they said, well, I guess I imagine they look like me. And she gasped when she said it because she didn't realize that she understood herself as a standard human being, a default human being, and everyone else is a variant, mm -hmm. right? And that somehow them not being like her justified the violence that they experienced. That is the essence of white supremacy. It lives in our common sense in a way that we're not always able to detect. So anyway, that was the part of, that was the conversation we were having in church at that time. And I'm going, no one has ever talked about it this way before. But it's making sense of so many of my experiences. And in that conversation, these terms are thrown around like systemic and accommodation and assimilation and code switching and all these things. And like all this language is perfect for like things that I've experienced, but I've never heard it before. And I sat with that for a while. I sat with that for a while because I was like, that makes sense. But it's so, it feels like I'm barely grasping it. But a couple of years later, when I watched Polano Castile lead to death on Facebook Live in front of his girlfriend and their four-year-old daughter, I knew that there was a pattern to this. Like I knew that kind of thing could happen to me. I knew it in my bones. Right. Because I was really young, but I was alive when Rodney King was assaulted by the police. And I remember hearing about Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown and Sandra Bland, and Tamir Rice and all these others. And I had my own experiences, the Gina Six when I was in college, all, all these different things I knew that happened to me. And so I said, I know that there's a pattern to this. But I need to really look into what what people mean when they say systemic racism. And I need to understand how that system works. And that put me on a journey to learn everything that I can about the criminal justice system at first and about nonviolent struggle. And that's when things really started to shift. So as there's this gradual breaking of the fog of the gaslighting effect over years, but 2016 was like the watershed moment, I would say. Right. And you have a, just a phenomenal article. I'll put a, a link to it. And, and it's um, how to tell if it's time to drag an insanely heavy boulder around <laughs> LA. Can you talk about that? Because it does such an incredible job of visually and even somatically for you, obviously, yeah, um, yeah. Con conveying what daily the daily life is under that oppression. Yeah. Three weeks after I, or I think it was three weeks, it was about 20 days or so after I watched Orlando Castile die on Facebook Live. I had a vision, which I always feel so weird about saying, because like I grew up in charismatic evangelicalism and it's like <laughs> everyone is like talking to angels and all this kind of stuff in church. So they say, right. And like by then, I didn't know what I believe about God or spirituality anymore. I'm just like, I don't know. All I know is that I want to stop feeling unsafe in the world. And I have this crazy like 
spiritual experience where, you know, for weeks I had felt so distraught and so burdened by seeing these scenes like this, like Alton Sterling and Philando Castile's death. And also seeing how people that I loved, white people in my life that I loved were so detached from these realities, right? And so expressing so much doubt and so much gaslighting behavior, honestly. So I'm sitting over this plate of leftovers in my living room because I'm a very good cook and I had like made my favorite dish, chicken carbonara, and I had some leftovers. Every time I make it, there's (laughs) leftovers. So I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm about to get to these leftovers. And next thing, I'm like in this daydream, but I'm conscious. So sometimes you daydream, you don't know that you're daydreaming until you're done. But I'm in this daydream and I'm just as lucid and aware as I am right now. And in this daydream, I'm in old Pasadena. There's this park down there and I'm walking by the park in this daydream. And from the park, I hear a street creature. I don't like street preachers. I've not liked street preachers for a long time, but I'm always curious about them because whenever I see a street preacher, I'm like, first off, People still do that. Like they go out (laughs) on the street and they yell at people about Jesus Christ (laughs) and hell and all that kind of stuff. And so I always tend to like stop and just listen. And I'm always tempted. Like the reason why I keep stopping is not just because I'm curious about what they have to say, but I'm like tempted to like, like maybe I could say something that's actually good news, right? Like (laughs) something positive, or maybe I could stump them in some way. But so anyway... In the daydream, I hear the street preacher from coming from the park and I'm like, I'm going to go in there and see what this guy's talking about. And I walk into the park and I get close enough to see who the street preacher is. And I look and the street preacher is me. I'm in the daydream looking at myself preaching in this park. And next to me is this large white boulder. And on that boulder is written all of these racial injustices like mass incarceration and Uh, police brutality and the names of victims of police violence. And I'm standing there and I am like reciting like whole passages from like these prophetic poems from the Bible about like a world where this stuff doesn't exist anymore. And the next thing I come back to my set, I come back to myself and I'm sitting in my living room over that plate of leftovers and I just start crying because I feel like I'm supposed to do this thing. And I also feel like that would look, I would look like a crazy person if I do that. But I did. I went through with it. By the end of that night, I had a hundred pound boulder in my possession. I'm sitting outside my home studio where I record all my music, painting this boulder white. And I've got this wagon because the thing is too heavy for me to like carry around at the time. I did get stronger as I was carrying it. So like (laughs) carrying it got easier. Picking it up got easier. But And so for about six months, I took that boulder For about four months, I took it everywhere with me. And then for two months, I just took it to church because I still played music at many churches. I played the piano at many churches. And I did it. To me, it represented like the mental burden that racism puts on the Black psyche. And I wanted for people to see, like when I walk into the room, because I feel like this this is what was expected of me, is that like, I'm supposed to just compartmentalize, go about life like I'm not. Like seeing these things doesn't have an effect on my mental health and my well-being, mm. but how could it not? So I'm let, I'm letting this boulder around with all these things written on it so that people can see when I come into this job interview, when I enter this classroom, when I walk into the, when I walk into the room for dinner with you, when I go on, when I show up for this date or whatever, like I am lugging all this stuff with me. Yeah. And, um, you just have a just phenomenal quote basically at the end of, end of that, that just you ask a question like, how do I know when it's time to drag it out again? And and you said, when the unaffected are comfortable while the affected grieve. And mm-hmm. I think that's what's so poignant about that. Like you mentioned, you're carrying this everywhere, yeah. but visually you can't normally see it, you know, but yes. now you're like, I want to show you that I carry this everywhere and it affects every right. area of my life or even the the slow death associated with racism, like actually shortening the lifespan yep. and compromising immune systems. And the research around that is is crazy. So uh, can you talk about, I mean, you have done tons of dive into history. You've looked at the systems around racism and then also mm-hmm. just the principles of nonviolent civil resistance. So can you talk about the different systems inside of the racism that you've explored? And then also- Whoa. 
<laughs> I'm like, okay, here we yeah. go. Three hours later, <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, I'll just sure. hand it over to you, and you can you can talk about what, what I want to hear. I want to hear your question, but yeah, yeah, I want to hear racism um, in terms of systems, what that mm-hmm. actually looks like for the research and stuff that you've done, and then that you've studied of nonviolent re- um, resistance and what that looks like as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are not trained in America to think systemically. First off, that's like the first thing I think that we have to understand is that it's a very individualistic society. And I think that is uh, intentional. I think that as long as we think individually in that way, then it becomes more difficult for us to see the context that we're living in, right? And so, and if we can't see the context that we're living in, that we can't, if we can't see the problem, we can't fight the problem, right? Basically, that's what it is, right? And so really understanding like, the systemic part is not so hard to see if we just think about like how America was founded, right? Like a nation needs all these different kinds of systems, right? We need a system of government. We need law. We need, we need some way to enforce the law, apparently, (laughs) right? We need hospitals and we need transportation and we need all of these things, right? So Obviously, there is a system. We can start there, right? We can agree that there is a system. And every nation needs several different types of systems in order for there to be a society that functions well, right? I think we can all agree on that. Now, the nature of that, of those systems, right? Now, that's a different question. Are they neutral? Are they moral? Are they immoral? Are they just? Are they unjust? And you have to be just straight up in denial to say, that America's founding, like the founding of the society, the foundations of it, the way that it was built, the way that it was structured, is either neutral or inherently good for everyone, right? Because, for instance, let's just go there. Let's <laughs> yeah, just let's, go do, there. let's do it. Let's do it. Let's, let's go there. There are Third Reich Nazis in the 1930s writing about legal theory, right? And they, what they write about the law is they say that the law should serve the race. They say that the law should serve the race. And you see that in their creating the Nuremberg laws that are making these distinctions between themselves and between Jewish people so that they can say that the ways that they're going to exclude Jewish people from mainstream society and from the privileges of mainstream society is going to be legally justified, right? Now, one of those writers writes about America, and they say that the greatest advancement in the struggle for world domination of the Aryan race, of the white races, was the founding of the United States of America. And the reason why they write this is because they were looking at Jim Crow in America and seeing the same principle that the law should serve the race in America. And we can see this just by thinking about the things that used to be legal and illegal in America, right? It used to be illegal for a black person to marry a white person in America. Is that based on some moral principle of the universe? No. It used to be illegal for black people to congregate. It used to be illegal for Black people to own businesses or to own land. A Supreme Court decision determined that the Negro, this is a quote, has no rights that white people are bound to respect. That's a quote from the Supreme Court. So when right now I'm talking about the legal system, right? That is racism. And it's baked in to the legal system. Those laws were put into place to ensure that white people were more privileged and dominant in society, right? And so when we look at those kinds of, when we look at any system in America, pretty much, you can look at transportation, you can look at housing, you can see the ways that decisions were made ensure an unequal society. I'll just use one more example. Like when I was looking for an apartment, I told that story in the book, I didn't know that there are statistics, and I can't remember them off the top of my head. I didn't know that statistically, like when Black people go to look for homes, they are shown less properties than their white counterparts. 
mm-hmm. when you talk about police brutality. I didn't know that a a black person is three times more likely to to die in a police encounter than their white counterparts. These are all things you can look into history. So anyway, when you look into the system, you find racism in all of these systems because America was founded that way. The the founding document of America, I think we would say, is probably the Declaration of Independence, right? And in that document, it says that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with inalienable rights and blah, 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 yada, yada. Okay. However, they owned slaves at the time that they did not free enslaved people with the writing of that document. In fact, in the Declaration of Independence, it seems like they blame Britain for slave uprisings. And, and so not only do they not free the enslaved, they acknowledge that there are enslaved people there. And they say, the reason why we have so much problems keeping our captives in line is because of you guys, right? Mm-hmm. So America's founded on racial inequality, so, which means that the society that is built on that foundation it's also going to be racially unequal. And we, we've seen that. Like America was founded on this principle of inequality It is a state that maintains that inequality and it only experiences freedom movements from time to time that push it to make certain adjustments toward racial justice. And then oftentimes, though, whatever progress we make is rolled back pretty quickly. And it's not just an American problem. There's something that I write about in the book as well, that we forget that the folks who were here before they began calling themselves Americans were just British colonists and the British Empire is one of the biggest empires in the history of the world that really set the standard for these kinds of unequal politics. And many other European nations were doing this in the Caribbean, like France and in Africa, also going to name France there. Basically, a bunch of European nations practicing these unequal colonization, stealing land, oppressing people, segregating people, making laws to enforce that segregation and enrich their nations. So big problem. Later on in history, we just call that fascism. Fascism, imperialism, they're related in that way. So anyway, what I learned about fighting against these systems came into play because when I thought about like, well, how do, what do we do in this situation in America? I thought about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That's the first name that came to mind because we know that in America, it used to be, I think you can say it was worse, right? The whites only signs on water fountains and restaurants and the constant lynchings and bombings and all these other kinds of things. And there were a bunch of ordinary Black people that organized to fight against these things. And they at least changed the common sense in America to a degree, right? Like people don't just walk around calling us the N-word anymore in America. And there's so much that needs to be changed. So much has also changed at the same time. So I went on a journey to try to understand Why did the civil rights movement work? How did they do that without weapons? Because at the time when this was happening, there were a lot of folks that I was friends with that were saying the only way that we're going to be able to change this is if we take up arms and and fight for our freedom in that way. And I'm not going to say that revolutionary armed struggle never works because otherwise America wouldn't exist. (laughs) You know, that's how America was founded. But That doesn't seem like a viable option in our case. Even if it were, I have asked the question many times, and maybe some people might have a problem with this, but I have asked many times, who would we become in the process? We don't have to get into a nuanced discussion about the uses of uh, armed struggle and the legitimacy of it. I, I do feel like people have the right to do that. It just didn't seem like it was a viable option for me and didn't really sit with my values. So I went on a deep intellectual quest, a serious intellectual quest, as Dr. King calls it himself when he starts studying nonviolence, to understand nonviolent struggle. And that took me through the work of Thoreau and Gandhi, Tolstoy, King, Gene Sharp, Sergei Popovich, Erica Chenoweth, just down the line, this genealogy of nonviolent struggle. And I learned so much about the principles of nonviolent struggle, what it is and why it works, different types of nonviolent struggle, because people don't realize that it's not just one version of nonviolent struggle. That exists. I came out hopeful, first off, which mm. was not what I was necessarily looking for, but so glad that I did come out feeling hopeful because I learned the story. Ordinary, organized, outraged, unarmed people fighting against Nazis and winning. Like, if there's any, if there's any example in history that people are like, no, you have to use force to win, it's Nazis. And there's this story from 1945 in Berlin called the Rosenstrasse protest, where these women 
these non-Jewish women had their husbands abducted by Nazis and they went and confronted these Nazis that stole their husbands and they won their husbands back through protests. And that story, I mean, I remember like my jaw just being on the floor reading this story that the Nazis just let their husbands go because a couple hundred women stood up to them. And one of the tragedies, I think, is that there weren't more uprisings like that. Because I've asked the question, what if the whole country would behave that way? And I'm still asking that question. As we look at problems and situations of oppression all over the world, what if the whole country knew that nonviolent struggle has been proven to be twice as effective as armed struggle by a massive study of 323 conflict situations by Eric Chenoweth and Maria J. Stephan? What if they knew that in that same study, that no oppressive regime had been able to withstand the sustained and active nonviolent resistance of just three and a half percent of the population. What if they knew these things? And so it became my mission to just tell everybody the same way I used to be a, a preacher, I used to be a pastor, I used to be a worship leader, and I grew up in evangelicalism. They told us like our mission in life was to go tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, I'm here to tell people the good news of nonviolent struggle, mm-hmm. that a few organized, ordinary, outraged people can really make a difference. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Because you, I mean, you have a you quote from Dr. King, basically says mm-hmm. like he's absolutely convinced that nonviolence, massively organized, powerfully executed, and militantly developed is still the most potent weapon available to the black man in his struggle yeah. in the United States. So talk about that. Like, what does it take to get it to be massively organized? To what oh, yeah. is the strategic aspect of it? Like, mm-hmm. what does that look like to actually get, like you said, three, three and a half? Yeah. What does that look like? I mean, there's so there's so much that could be said about this. So the first thing that I say is that everyone who's interested in this stuff, and I hope everyone is interested in this stuff, because I do believe that it's such a misunderstood weapon and such a powerful tool that we have, that they should probably read The Radical King, which is a collection of Dr. King's speeches and his philosophy of nonviolent struggle is in there. And also Blueprint for Revolution by Sergei Popovich, because it's very readable, it's very short, and it's like, in a way, kind of exhaustive, like it's almost comprehensive, but in a very fun way. Sergei founded the movement that overthrew Slobodan Milosevic in Serbia in the late 90s. And he and his comrades coined a phrase around the way that they organized called laftivism. So they used humor to overthrow this dictatorship. And that's a core value of his. So his book is very entertaining, is what I'm saying. His book is very entertaining at the same time as it is educational. What nonviolence practitioners call a nonviolent struggle, war without weapons. And I have found that framework to be helpful in certain ways, because when we think of how people prepare for battle, we understand that people don't go into battle without a plan, right? And that plan needs to be based on a deep knowledge of what some call the conflict situation. And I hope that doesn't sound too jargony. I hope that's self-explanatory. But the conflict situation is basically, hey, the mess that we're in, right? A part of understanding the conflict situation is understanding what type of government or what kind of powers are holding this oppressive thing in place. What is the structure of that system? What are the pillars of support? We often talk about this by like imagining the system as like an ancient Greek temple with these pillars that hold up the roof. And each of these pillars represent the institutions that uphold that thing, like the educational system, the police and military, the media, organized religion, all this kind of stuff, and really analyzing which pillars are there upholding that situation of oppression and how are they doing it. And what we understand is that in each institution, there are people, right? At the basis of this idea is a theory of power, right? And it is sometimes called the social view of power, which we're just going to go with because I can't remember the other names for it. And that's a fine piece of jargon for people to hold on to. Basically, it goes like this. Society is like a game of Simon Says. And I actually do this when I'm teaching and speaking. It's like a game of Simon Says. And I always tell people, okay, Simon Says, put your hand on your ear and they'll do it. I say, okay, Simon Says, say your first name and they'll do it. And I say, all right, Simon Says, pull your pants down. And nobody does it. Like no one's ever taken me up on that one because everyone knows like, no, like we're not going to do that. There's a higher, there's a higher rule or convention in society that says like, we don't just, we don't just disrobe in public. Right. And so then I point out, well, who has the power in this game? 
Like we all said that the game works this way. Simon has the power. Simon says to do something and you do it. But Simon gave a command and no one followed the order. Now the game is breaking down because the power really resides in the collective of the people. So in society, you have all of these people who are providing services for that oppressive regime or for the dictator or whatever, and they do it through these institutions. So the the media is reciting press releases from the police about someone they shot, in the, uh, an unarmed person that they shot in the back. That's a way that they're participating, right? There are these churches that refuse to say anything about the atrocities happening around them or, or even worse, repeating Donald Trump's talking points on Sunday morning or something like that. That's a way that they're participating. That's a way that they're playing the game, right? They're going along with what Simon says. Well, if you can convince people to stop giving their consent to that oppressive situation, then that oppressive situation can't stand anymore. And a part of that is doing that in an organized way. So let's use the Montgomery bus boycott as an example. I should have just gone there first. This was such a roundabout way to get here. <laughs> that was perfect. I love it. <laughs> you know, the Montgomery bus boycott is an example of this because you have a situation in Montgomery where the, the powers that be, the white power structure is saying, you black people are second class citizens and you have to sit in the back of the bus. And you have to submit to mistreatment. In fact, some of the things that, that precipitated the Montgomery bus boycott, there's a story. We know the story of Rosa Parks and how they insisted that she moved to the back of the bus and she refused. And that was part of what set things off. But there was another story. Excuse me. There was another story about a man who I can't remember his name, but Dr. King writes about it. And it's in that book, The Radical King. But this man, he got on the bus, he paid the bus fare, and they told, they insisted that he sit in the back. And he said that he would rather just take his money back and leave, but they wouldn't give him his, his money back. And so now they're going back and forth because he wants his bus fare back because he's not going to ride the bus. And they refuse. They call the police on this man. The police show up and they kill him. So that's the kind of thing that was happening in Montgomery. Well, when they call the bus boycott, that is their way of saying, we are not going to consent to being ruled this way. We're not going to consent to being second-class citizens in this city. We're not going to ride the bus. And it wasn't just like individuals just refusing. They had these mass meetings in these churches where they talked about what they were going to do and how it was going to go, right? Even Rosa Parks's participation in this movement. So Rosa Parks was not just some individual who decided spontaneously one day that she wasn't going to follow this order. Actually, there were several civil rights leaders in Montgomery who wanted to stage a protest and they were very particular about who, who should be in the face of this particular resistance. There was another woman named Claudette Colvin who actually had refused to give up her seat on the bus before Rosa Parks did. And the reason why the movement didn't choose Claudette Colvin as the face of the movement was because they didn't feel like she would be a sympathetic character. So there was a very organized and strategic effort to choose Rosa Parks as the face of that movement. And they didn't just say, okay, well, every individual is just going to choose, you know, like, obviously individuals choose for themselves, but it's not like a just throw it out there and you boycott the bus and whatever you do is up to you. They actually organized a carnival so that people could still commute to work and to school and all that kind of stuff. And they organized a way to replace people's shoes if they wore out from walking so much. And so in this example, you see a level of organization that makes it powerful and makes it sustainable, right? It's a great example, I think, of, of organization. And that's the kind of thing that we need to be doing uh, around the country, around the world, is looking at how the system is structured, which pillars of that system are vulnerable to people power because they have a lot of people participating in that pillar so we can pull them out of there, right? And then that pillar becomes weak. And figuring out like how we can organize resistance and also organize alternative systems that make that resistance possible. Yeah. You talk about all of this in your book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, which again is yeah. launched March 22nd. I'd highly recommend checking it out. Just it's difficult and it's a short period of time to cover all of this stuff, but I really appreciate oh, yeah. what you're talking yeah. about. To shift just a slightly, 
What are you doing mm-hmm. right now? I mean, you're heavily involved mm-hmm. in music and you're also getting, yeah. you're using your music as a platform for these kind of things. So talk about that and what's next and for you and what's moving forward. Yeah, I've been writing protest music for a, for a while now. I shouldn't say a long time, but a while now. Like this whole journey that I write about in the book is you could, there's so many ways to look at like, what is the narrative arc here, right? And one of those narrative arcs is I'm an R&B singer. I'm writing songs about love and all this kind of stuff. And then this awakening begins to happen. And I decide like now my music really needs to focus on helping me tell this story in the same way that the boulder is there to help me tell my story. And bring attention to these things. But right now, I've really, I really feel like my focus is shifting a bit because what I've learned from being on the streets so much and trying to organize, I've seen a lot of good social justice work implode because people are not doing well inside. There's something in our mental health. There's something, I guess you could say it's spiritual. Like if if you want to use that language, our souls need care. We need healing. And I've seen so much, I've seen so much good social justice work that has potential implode because we're not getting the healing that we need. And that happened to me. I was diagnosed with PTSD last year, largely because of what I experienced in the movement. And so what I've been trying to do is shift from just saying difficult things to people who don't want to hear them. I was posting hard pill memes about anti-racism for several years and moving into trying to make pain medicine with my music for, especially for Black people, because I need it. Honestly, I know so many people that need it. And so that's what I've been doing is writing songs and also realizing like what I told you that story about the boulder. I kept saying, This boulder represents the burden that racism places on the black psyche. And I'm realizing again, like Kierkegaard says, like you, that life has to be lived forward, but can only be understood backwards. Right. So I look back over and go, wow, like I was always talking about mental health. Right. Well, on the other side of the story that I tell in the book, I've returned to, okay, I got into this work talking about the effect that this has on me, right? Talking about the burden that I'm carrying and talking about mental health. And I'm coming back to that in my music of trying to address it more directly. So I have this song that I'm going to release, hopefully later (laughs) this year, and it's called All I See Is Love. And I wrote All I See Is Love after my first mushroom trip, actually. (laughs) After my first mushroom trip. Because on that trip, That was the message that I got. I felt like I I went to the center of my being and I felt connected to everything in the universe. And I said to my friend who was um, sober and like overseeing this experience for me that it's just dark here and all I see is the universe smiling back at me. And I wrote this song called All I See Is Love because that's what I felt like I saw. And I feel like things like this are important because, for instance, in the summer of 2020, I was a part of a group an activist group that tried to do an occupation of a city hall and the police showed up with their batons and their shields and this truck tank thing and scared us off the property. And we spent the night on the floor of a church across the street. And I remember the fear. I remember like how stressful that summer was, right? And I keep saying to people, can you imagine how that might have been different or how that might have felt different in our bodies? Still stressful, but how that might have felt different in our bodies if we had spent every day, six months before that, in meditation for 30 minutes a day. If we knew, if we made sure, like as a training, as a training mandate that people knew how to do walking meditation and how to connect to their breath in the moment in in daily life. When you're dealing with the mental stress of living under untreated trauma and the mental stress of living under racial capitalism, and then you're face to face with the enforcers of racial capitalism and their weapons, right? It's compounding trauma. And so like, I'm writing these songs as a way of, again, expressing that the weight of that trauma in my own life, but also to confront it and to deal with it 
and to invite other people who are experiencing it to give voice to it as well and say, you're not alone. Like, I want to be here and embrace you with this music and say, like, the world may tell you that you are a suspect, you are a criminal, you are someone to be feared or whatever. But when you look inside of yourself, I'm telling you, there's all of the universe smiling back at you, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm hoping to create, like, these spaces for those who know what this stress is like to have spaces of healing and joy uh, for us because I'm realizing that in order for us to fight the power, we have to feel powerful. Yeah. I've, yeah, I've never really heard it talked about like that in relationship to mental health. Like you're talking about, it's like a training, right? Like if you're looking at it from the perspective, a strategic perspective, like you have a training for it and you know that these attacks, like emotionally, physically even, are, are coming, how can you actually train for that in advance and have a reserve of mental health and stuff stored up? So what can I do to process this? Um, practical oh, tools. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So part of social movements, there's a theory called resource mobilization theory, mm-hmm. right? No one needs to remember that term. For now, like, it'll help to frame this because What we're doing very much is using what we have, right, to try to get what we want. That's the essence of strategy is how do you use what you have to get what you want, right? Right. Okay, well, all right. So the white power structure wants to maintain power and they have billions of dollars. They have helicopters, they got got bombs, they got guns, they got personnel, not just to hold and use the weapons, but also to process people and they've got prisons to keep them. They are highly resourced right? We don't have all those resources, right? And what I saw in my time on the streets is people who, with so little resources, just getting burnt out and used. And our mental health is one of those resources. Obviously, we, we want to have good mental health just because like, we're human beings and that's our birthright, right? We deserve to live without being stressed out by right. all of these oppressive systems, right? And at the same time, having ourselves feel a bit more grounded and having a level of healing or being in, on a journey or process of healing from these systems as we fight them is only going to make our movement stronger, right? And I see this as an Achilles heel of our movement is that, of our movements is that we're imploding from the inside because um, many of us don't have the spiritual resources or the mental health resources or the soul care, however you want to talk about it. We don't have it and we need it. And so I really want to contribute to that. I really want to invest in that. And that's what I've tried to do with the music because again, okay, we have this big truck tank hybrid thing standing in front of us at City Hall, right? And here we are trying to stand up to it. And we're literally sputtering. We're sputtering, hacking gas, and we combust in front of it. It's just not likely to work. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, what you're talking about, I mean, when you look at that, the system, and you're looking at the, the pillars that hold it up and stuff, and it's people, and the biggest power that you have to demolish that system is people. Right. And then you have these people getting burned out. Like you said, it's like that Achilles heel where it's like, if we need to resource, like if the people are our biggest resource and they're getting burnt out, then our resource is depleted. There so we it's go. like, how do you how do you actually put life back into that? Yeah. So it's a big need. It's it, it really is it's a huge need. And another part of that is I'm also learning more and more the power of doing this work for social justice out of a deep sense of joy or at least being connected to our pursuit of joy and desire. Politics has always been about desire, right? Mm-hmm. It's always at the heart of, heart of that. And I'm learning that a lot from listening more to Black radical feminists and Black queer feminists and things like that, because that's something that I didn't learn from Dr. King and Malcolm X and Kwame Ture, like these militant, masculine, iconic figures in Black liberation history, which I'm grateful for them. And I'm not going to abandon the things that they taught me. But there's this whole other world of Black resistance that is deeply connected to Black wellness. And so what I'm learning is that Black freedom has to be Black wellness. What else could it possibly be? Like the end goal. And part of this is confusing the means for the end, right? Like the movement can become so much about the movement that people just think the struggle is for the struggle's sake when the movement is a means to, to an end. Like the movement is the means so that we can get to that place where 
we're just able to enjoy our lives without having to worry about anyone thinking that we're up to something and punishing us for it or thinking that we're unworthy and punishing us for it. And so that's what we're after. Like we're aiming through the target as we learn in Taekwondo. We try to break a board or something like that. <laughs> aiming through the target. And then also not assuming that you can't have any of that along the way. And I really appreciated that. So that's where I'm leading is connecting Black freedom, Black liberation to Black wellness and really trying to elevate that conversation. Yeah, you have a just a phenomenal quote um, on the Instagram that I saw that talks about this. And you said so many conflate anti-racism with the production and consumption of Black pain. The world be transformed if anti-racism described the active support of Black joy. Yes, I mean, I, exactly, because we feel like we're doing racial justice work by watching more or sharing more videos of Black people being harmed or reading these books. And, and people do need that awareness. I'm not saying that it should always be avoided. Like, people do need that awareness that people are in real pain. But for me, like, I'm a musician. That's what I love to do. And I feel like, I don't know how everybody else feels in their vocation, but I know like this is what I was made to do. And I feel like I'm supposed, as a musician, I'm supposed to make music the same way that a bird wakes up and sings every day. They do that because that's what, that they're wired to do that. And I'm wired to do that. I'm wired to sit down at the piano every day or to sing or to write. That's just what I'm to do. And like Toni Morrison says, racism is this huge distraction because I just want to sing, but I also got to figure out what am I going to do about white supremacy today? What am I going to do about anti-Blackness and racial violence today? Like whether I'm an activist or not, whether I'm organizing against it or not, I still got to figure out how I'm going to navigate this. Yeah. Some people, I don't think that they see supporting my ability to just sing <laughs> as racial justice work. And it's not just me. There are all these people who just want to live their lives. And so it's like, yeah, fine. Watch the documentary that helps you understand, like, watch 13th. Please do it because it'll help you understand the disproportionate, you know, effect of the prison industrial complex on Black people and Black communities. But also understand, like one of my mentors that I write about in my book, really what we're talking about when we talk about end ending racism is getting out of the way of Black joy. That's it. How do you get out of the way of Black joy. You find yourself working on a bunch of problems that affect everybody because the, the fact of the matter is the way that these systems and structures have been built to annihilate Black joy, they shouldn't happen to anybody. Those things should not happen to anybody, right? So if you make sure that those things that have been done to harm Black people are undone, you end up helping everyone who is uh, part of the collateral damage of that policy, right? Yeah. So, so I mean, just absolutely beautiful. I really appreciate your time and all the experience and things that you've gone through to be at this point. Where, where can people go to connect up with you? Where can people go, like you talked about, what can they do to help promote the healing or, or support in any way? What does that look like? Yeah, to, to keep in touch with me and if people want to be a part of the stuff that I'm making, the best place to find me is at my website. It's andrehenry.co.co. I, I have an email list there. We send out once a month with some practical insight about anti-racism and social change, some links about that stuff and whatever projects I'm working on, we send out updates about that. My social media is there and, and I'm always promoting other people that are doing good work. Like that's what my podcast is about. Like my podcast came about because I was just like, I want to talk to every anti-racist on the internet. If you are doing <laughs> anti-racist work, I want to have you on the show. So there's just a wealth of other freedom fighters uh, on that show and it's completely free. So they're getting out such great insight and you can hear about their work. So that's called Hope and Hard Pills. So people yes. can check it out uh, um, yeah. on there as well. So I'll put the links to all that in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you so much um, for sharing your story. It's really important. It's really necessary. And I just appreciate Thanks for having me. Yeah. You're doing incredible, incredible work. Wow. What a powerful episode. Just 
incredible the things that Andre's been through and so many other people, the lived experience, um, black folks in America and the history behind it. Well, one of the things that really stood out to me, I mean, the whole thing was phenomenal, but one of the things that really stood out to me was what if anti-racism was really about the pursuit of black joy and black wellness? What if we could actually do that? And again, he goes into so much more depth about all of these things, the history, the structure of systemic racism, the pillars that hold it up, the principles behind nonviolent protest in his book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, which is actually probably by the time you listen to this, it will actually have launched. So it launches March 22nd. Definitely check that out. Support the work he's doing, the effort of love that he's poured into making the book and his music. You can check it out on Spotify and you know wherever you get your music as well, Andre Henry. And then if you're looking for more resources around anti-racism, the books he mentioned were Radical King, which is a collection of Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, speeches, and then Blueprint for Revolution, which is Serja Popovich, and that's about the laftivism using humor and then basically the manual framework of how nonviolent protest is actually more effective. And then check out his uh, website, andrehendry.co, and you can get his monthly newsletter, like he mentioned, or his podcast, Hope and Hard Pills, and just support the incredible work he's doing. Amazing conversation. I felt really privileged to be a part of it. Before you go, I would love it if you actually just shared this episode with a friend. I'm sure while you were listening, someone just popped in their head and you're like, oh, they would probably like this as well. So it's really easy. You just click the share button on either the website or whatever podcast platform you're on and send it over to them. And chances are they'll probably like it too. Until next time, keep engineering your success. 